Uh, I've entitled the message, God Says, The World Says. How many know that there are a bunch of people who think vaccinations are good? How many know there are a bunch of people that think vaccinations are bad? <laughs> there is this idea that uh, uh, people just don't agree on it, right? People don't agree. Some say they're good, some say they're bad. And the problem is, is that if you think that they're bad, it's not very hard to find reports that say that they, they, they actually cause more harm than good. But if you think that they're good, it's not very hard to find reports that say that they're good. And if we didn't have them, then we would have all kinds of issues. So today, when we look at in our life, we see all kinds of different things. We're going to see reports, conflicting reports from every side. And the question we have to ask ourselves, which one are we supposed to believe? And the world is full of conflicting reports. Have you guys noticed that? Just full of them, left and right, backwards and forward. We receive all kinds of reports. We receive economic reports in the news. Some say the economy is great. Some say it's bad. Depends on who you talk to. Depends on which reports you're reading. You get health reports from people. We get reports of our worth, of our loveliness, of our righteousness. We even get reports with different opinions on the very existence of God doesn't take long to watch the news and some will say the Democrats are right, some will say the Republicans are right. Some would say that, that they're all uh, uh, equal, but many leave, live to the contrary, right? Most of us would say, oh no, people are, people are equal. But we all live to the contrary most of the time. We have people that, uh, and when I say we, I'm talking collectively as a, as a world, not we in this room. But, you know, we, we, we live like some people are better than others, even though we say that they're not. Like I mentioned earlier, vaccines, you can find reports and studies that show completely at odds with one another. And I think on a spiritual level, we face it as well. Sometimes we think that we're unlovable, but God says that we're loved. Like I said, there are many that would argue that there is no God, and then there are those of us who argue that there is a God. And many say that Jesus was just a good man or he was just a myth. Although we say that he was God come in the flesh. As we think about these conflicting reports, no matter what they are in life, we have to make a decision which one we're going to believe. Amen. So let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to the word this morning. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I thank you as that we study your word this morning, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and clarity. Father, that we would leave here with our faith having increased, Lord, and a greater revelation of who you are. Father, we come with an expectation of you to speak to us through your word. Father, we stand with our, our hearts ready, our eyes ready to see, our ears ready to hear, Father. Let it be so for us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we talk about all these conflicting reports. I want you to know as Christians, because that's what we're going to look at today, right? We set the stage. There's conflicting reports everywhere. But today I want to look at what does God say versus what does the world say? Because how many of you know that most of the time that's conflicting too? And the reality is, is that we're at war. How many of you guys know that you're at war? In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
We may not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle, amen? We are at war. And how many know that when you're at war, the outcome of the battle is often dictated by the quality of the information that you have or the amount of information that you have? How many know that in war, you need intel? Got a new microphone, and it is trying to jump all over the place. Hallelujah. In this world right now, the world contends for mind share in our lives. The world contends to fill our lives with bad intel. Because with bad intel, you make bad decisions. Amen? It speaks, the world speaks in opposition to what God has to say. And here's the problem. It's real easy to listen. One, because sometimes it just sounds good. Uh, the world is able to make an effective argument. You know, one of the things that I've said is I, I love watching um, apologetic stuff on YouTube and debates between atheists and Christians. And uh, what always amazes me is when an atheist gets up there, how good their arguments are. I mean, if you didn't have any equipping on the other side, you could just be bowled over because it just makes sense. The arguments are good. And there have been times they get up there and I'm like, I don't even know how to, if, if this question came to me, if this argument, I wouldn't know how to answer it. I wouldn't know how to stand against it. And then the Christian will get up there. And then you're like, wow, he just blew it away. He had a response. And his argument was amazing as well. And that's the thing, if we're not careful, if we listen, because the argument sounds so good, then we're going to fall. Because we wage a war with incomplete information, at best, to utterly incorrect information, at worst. Amen? God and the world are both speaking to us, church. So the question is, who are you going to believe? One of my favorite stories in the Bible is this story here in Numbers 13. It's the story of the spies that go out to spy the land that, that God had sent them. And in Numbers 13, 17 through 20, it says, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Hallelujah. So most of us know the backstory of, of this, uh, this story in the Bible. Moses has just led his people out of captivity, led God's people out of captivity. And they are, are going towards a land that God has promised to them. Right? God says, I'm going to send you to a land that flows with milk and honey. That's what he tells them. And, and he, he sets them free from the Egyptians who had them in prison. And they're making their way towards the promised land. And, and this is when they go out to spy the land. Spy the land just means they're going to go check it out, see what's there, see how things are going. So Moses, acting on behalf of God, he sends out 12 spies into this land overflowing with milk and honey. And now there's many ways to assess this situation. 
when you go to check something out, right? Usually we use our five senses. And that's how we're going to look at stuff. You know, when, when you want to know if something tastes good, what do you do? You taste it, right? That's always a good plan. You ever notice when your wife finds something's bad, she's like, this smells terrible, smell it. Why would I want to smell it? You already told me it smells bad. But we use our five senses, right? If we want to know how something feels, we touch it. If you want to know what something looks like, you look at it, right? We use our five senses. So he sends them out to spy the land. And here's the thing. God gave our senses to us. We should use them, amen? There's nothing wrong with using your senses. And we can even acknowledge in our life that difficulties might be coming our way. Just because God sends you to do something doesn't mean it's going to be easy, amen? So I don't think when Moses sends out the spies into the land, he's acting in unbelief. He's not uh, misunderstanding what God is trying to say to him. I think what Moses is doing is wisdom, right? God says, I want you to take this land, but he goes out and he's going to check it out first. In our own lives, when we look ahead towards our future and we plan, that's wisdom, just because the scripture says that God takes care of even the sparrow, so we shouldn't be anxious for anything, doesn't mean you shouldn't have a savings account. Amen? That's wisdom. Being a good steward with what God has given you. However, we also have to be careful that when we look towards the future, that we're not put off by the difficulties that we see. Because we're going to see difficulties. We're going to face difficulties. When God tells you to do something, it may not be easy. It's probably going to be hard. On your own, you wouldn't even be able to do it. But with him, it's possible. Amen? In many ways, I remember when uh, I was in high school. The only thing I miss about high school is football. I love playing football. Only thing I missed... But before a game, we would usually get tapes of the other team, and we would watch them play. You would watch game tapes, hours of the other team playing. And the idea wasn't that you would be afraid of what they were doing or that you would get intimidated by how good they played or what they did. The whole point was to be prepared. Amen. So I think what Moses is doing here, he's just getting prepared. He's not doubting God. He's not thinking that, you know, God told me to go into this... Uh, into this area, and, and, and I just want to make sure he's just getting prepared, using wisdom. And if we continue on in the story, verses 21 through 23, it says, So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebohamath, and they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron and Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranate and figs. So they do what Moses told them. They head out, start spying out the land. They begin to take a look. And what do they find? A single cluster of grapes that is so big, they have to put it on a pole and carry it between two people. Now think about this. When you go to the store and you're in Safeway and you're looking on the table where they got all the grapes, anybody ever found a, a bunch of grapes that was so big that you had to have somebody help you carry it out? I mean, think of this is a massively large bunch of grapes. I mean, the stuff growing here is growing good, amen? 
they start to see a glimpse of the promise of what God had promised them. God promised them that it was overflowing with milk and honey, and they see these grapes, they're massive, and they're, they're, they're starting to see the promise, and the promise is huge. Matter of fact, if you read verse 24, um, the, the valley where they find the grapes is from, from then on, is called the Valley of Eshkel. Eshkel just means cluster. The cluster of grapes in this valley are so large and make such an impact on this men that they named the valley after the cluster of grapes. Right? This is a big deal. These, this, is, this is not something they see every day. This isn't normal. This is, this is God giving them something huge. And how many times in your life have you had a small taste of what God has given you, what God has promised you, but then you find the really tough times are on the way. You see, that's what's going to happen here. Sometimes we think that when we're born again and, and God is taking care of us and so we're not going to have an issue in the world, it's all gumdrops and lollipops from here on out. But it's not. Sometimes things are hard. Sometimes things are tough and difficult. So we continue on. <clears throat> In verses 25 through 27, it says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, and all the congregation showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So they wait, the rest of the congregation, they wait for 40 days in anticipation of what was to be found, what was to be learned. And you wonder, what were the people waiting for? What were they hoping for? And it starts out well enough, right? It says that uh, the land which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, right? They got the figs, they got the, they got the, uh, the grapes, and, you know, when it's talking about milk, it's actually a reference to the fruit of man. In other words, you know, they're going to be able to raise their livestock, which is going to return fruit, right? These are excellent grazing lands. The animals are going to be well taken care of, and they're going to have that from it. Honey is the fruit of the land, right? They didn't, I don't think they kept bees back then. When you found honey, it was growing wild. But this stuff is growing wild, so this, this place is just robust in what it has to provide for them. And there's just massive natural resources for them. And if they would have just stopped there, it would have all been well and good. You see, I think if we could keep our initial excitement when God was doing something in our life, if we could just grab a hold of that and not let it go, I think we'd be all right. If we could grab a hold of it and not let anything steal our trust of him, then all would be well for us. But you're already starting to see a little foreshadowing. You notice what it says here? It says, we came to the land which you sent us. What do you think they should have said there? Notice they don't say, we came to the land that you gave us. Because that's how God referred to it. The land I've given you. But no, they say, the land that you've sent us. You're already seeing a little bit of foreshadowing about how the spies are beginning to think. Maybe it gives some insight as to how they're starting to see God's promise. But if we continue on in verses 28 through 29, it says, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, right? They should have just stopped there. 
We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is a fruit just like you said, God. It says, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. You remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Joseph was talking about the buts in the Bible. However, it's just another word for but, right? But the people who dwell there in the land are large. You see, the problem that the Israelites have is they have their butt in the wrong place. How many know you need to have your butt in the right place? That's the key. That's the goal. You see, Paul used to describe negative things, and then he would say, but we are convinced of greater things concerning you. How many know that's your butt in the right place? But here, the butt's in the wrong place. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I understand their apprehension. There's been times when I've looked at things that seem like they're insurmountable, that, that uh, if you're not careful, you can let it overwhelm you. I want to give you some insight, though, into why they're afraid. How many know that it would be bad enough if you just saw large amounts of people in armies? That would be enough to give you a little bit of concern. God says he gave us this land, but it's full of people, and I don't think that they, they agree. But let me give you some more insight. It says the descendants of Anak, or Anak, or however that's pronounced. don't suppose it's important. The descendants of Anak there. Do you guys know who the descendants of Anak are? You know Goliath was a descendant of Anak? Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall, thereabouts. Even if I'm off by nine inches, he's still a big dude. Can you imagine that? Not only do you have to go fight these people, and how many know that if you know the rest of the story, they didn't just walk in and say, God said, and the other people went, oh, in that case, they had to fight for the land, Right? God had given them to them, which means they were assured in receiving it, but they still had to take the land that God had given them. Amen? We have to choose, though, what we let influence us. Right? There is a difference between being prepared and just completely disregarding what God says. We have to ask ourselves, Will it be God's promise and his ability to fulfill it that we listen to that influences us? Or will it be the negative report? Right, because that's what happened. Ten of these 12 spies come back with a negative report. They say, listen, it's great just like God said it was, but the people there are too big, they're too tough. Will it be the obstacles that influence us or the word of God that influences us? We have to make a choice. How different do you think this story would be if all the spies had their butts in the right places? What if, what if instead of saying, but the people who dwell there in the land are, are, are strong and their cities are fortified, what if they said, we saw giants, but God is faithful. We saw giants, but God has given us the land. The people who dwell in the land are large and strong, but if God is for us, who can be against us? 
What if they would have said it like that? What if that was their mindset? What if their trust was that God was going to do what he said he was going to do? It would be a completely different story. And I wouldn't have such a clever message to share with you today. To continue on in verse 30 through 33, it says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the man who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Wait a minute. A moment ago, it was a land that had huge grapes and figs, and it was flowing with milk and honey. Now, all of a sudden, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. It's interesting that all the spies saw the same land, they saw the same people, they saw the same resources, but some of them came back and said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and others came back and said, no, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. Those reports are at odds. Which one are they going to believe? You see, when we we look at this story, we see that Caleb is the one that talked, but if you know, it's, it's Caleb and Joshua were two of the 12 spies that had the same good reports. They had their butts in the right place. They had the same information as all of the other spies, but their outlook was completely different. Caleb says, listen, let's go and take possession of it. He didn't say, let us go conquer it. See, he understood the conquering was a done deal. When God says something, it's as good as done. There is no doubt, there is no confusion. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. So, so Caleb didn't even say, let's go conquer it. Let's go war. Let's go fight for it. Let's do our best. He said, let's go take possession of it. See, the problem was not the opposition. The problem was is how they viewed themselves, how they viewed God's promise. It says, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. In today's uh, more common language, we would say something like, they saw themselves as little shrimps, little nothings. They weren't big enough to deal with it. They weren't even a mouthful. They would just get terrorized by these people. And as a result of how they saw themselves, it influenced how the enemy saw them. The NASB translates it like this, we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, And so we were in their sight. You notice there, and even here it says, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. This so here implies that it has something to do with the sins before it. We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. Because they saw themselves that way, it actually allowed the enemy to view them that way. I don't, understand, I don't know if you understand that, but that is something incredibly powerful. How you see yourself impacts how other people see you. How you see yourself is going to impact how the enemy sees you. It wasn't that long ago we were just, I was just preaching to you guys about who you are in Christ. 
and how we should live as we are in Christ. Walk that out. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? 8.37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we see ourselves as conquerors, as victorious, that's how Caleb saw himself. He didn't say we have to go somehow wrestle this away. He said, let's just go take possession of it. God says it's ours. He saw himself as victorious because that's who God says he was. And the same is true for us. If we, if we see ourselves as victorious in Christ, then we will be victorious because that's how the enemy will see us because we're standing in faith on the word of God. But if we see ourselves as, as lower than low, if we just see ourselves as, as worthless sinners, if we just see ourselves as, as, as being defeated all the time, that's how the enemy is going to see you and he's going to take advantage of that. If ever you feel like a grasshopper in your own sight... You'll do well to remember what God has said about you. Amen. What John Gardner said about the political arena, I think can be applied to the spiritual arena and the Christian's walk of faith. He says, we are continually faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as insoluble problems. Everything that we see is an insoluble problem, an insolvable problem, an insurmountable problem. It's just a brilliantly disguised opportunity if we put our trust in the Lord. Amen? There are opportunities to express our faith in God. Verses Numbers 14, 1 through 4 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What, that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You know, the alternative to trusting your victory in God is grumbling. That's either trusting in victory or complaining and whining. Grumbling has terrible consequences. Look at your workplace. Have you ever met, worked with somebody that's always complaining, always grumbling? It, it ends up turning your workplace into a hostile work environment, particularly when they're always complaining about the leadership, and, and it's, it's toxic, and it just makes a terrible place to work. I mean... And then these guys here, they, they talked and, and complained themselves into pre preferring to die elsewhere. <laughs> they talked and complained themselves into preferring to go back into captivity in Egypt. You see, that's what happens when instead of trusting God, you start complaining and grumbling. You end up talking yourself into a worse place. You see, they tried to form a coup, pick a, a new leader, and go back into slavery. Can you imagine that? You know, we look at this and we're like, these people are crazy. Why do they want to go back into slavery? But you know many, how many of you guys in this room have done that very thing yourself? Instead of walking in the freedom that God has given you, you, you decide it's too hard, it's too tough, and you willingly go back to the slavery that you were in. The interesting thing here, too, is they had to know that if they went back to the Egyptians. I mean, imagine what's happened, right? All the plagues came from God and just terrorized the Egyptians. 
Then they robbed them, basically. They took all, all of their gold and all their stuff. Then they crossed the Red Sea, and, and a full army, uh, Pharaoh's army, was chasing after them. And, and when they got through, it came in and killed the entire army. And then they get out there, and they go, you know what? I bet if we go back to the Egyptians, they're just going to welcome us back with open arms. <laughs> like we're the prodigal sons returning. They're just, they had talked themselves into thinking that this would be better. Can you imagine? I bet you can. We've done it ourselves. Had those thoughts creep in where we, we begin to doubt that God promised us something. God told us something. Maybe you're struggling with a sin and, and you just want to give up because it seems so hard. Maybe God didn't mean freedom for you, so you go back to something that could kill you. The problem was is they began to look for a leader who would do what they want instead of what God wants. That's a dangerous place to be, amen? We continue on in the story, verses 5 through 10. It says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the, Lord, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord with us. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting, to all of the people of Israel. In those days, tearing of your clothes was a way to express grief or a, a loss of honor or shame. In my eyes, I just try to picture what this would look like. I, just everybody getting upset. It's horrible. But that was, that was what they did. They tore their clothes when they, when they were ashamed or they, they, there was a lack of honor or, or there was this grief. And we see that, 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 that Caleb and Joshua, they tore their clothes. They're like, what are you guys thinking? God is with us. He's not with them. God is going to save us. Why are you guys thinking this way? And that's the thing is when we walk by sight instead of faith, we often turn against the ones we love or the ones who will help the most. You ever notice that? Thing is, is fear is always pointing you away from God. Fear is actually faith in something that could happen. See, the congregation wanted to kill them for the fear. So church, I just want to encourage you, don't let your your fear caused you to turn from God and instead run towards destruction. Fear is not given by God. It's not desired by God. It is actually overcome and removed by God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So the spirit of power, God gives us the tools and the Holy Spirit to operate without fear. We're operating as ambassadors of God with his blessing and authority. How many of you know that should, that should help you get rid of some fear? 
you're operating as an ambassador of God without or with his blessing and with his authority. And then it says he's given us a spirit of love because perfect love casts out all fears. Why? Because when the one who loves you with a perfect love holds you, you feel safe and secure. He is your rock, your shield, and your protection. And then finally, he says he's given us a spirit of discipline. How many know that when you're talking about discipline, you know, moving in the face of fear, how many know that we usually call that courage? Courage isn't the lack of fear, but the triumph over it. It's a choice to, instead of succumb to your fear, to overcome your fear. Amen? And if we continue on in verses 20 through 24, skip ahead a little bit, it says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servants Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Had you been there, would you have entered? Or would you have been one of those who believed the bad report? And what's interesting to me is, it says here, it says, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs. These weren't men that were confused about who God was and his power. They had seen it over and over, right? They saw the plagues come against the Egyptians. They saw what happened to the firstborn sons in Egypt. They saw what happened when they crossed the Red Sea. They have seen all these signs. Yet, they still chose to disbelieve. You know, and, and, and I think this is crazy. Like, why? how could they see that? But I, one time, uh, Pastor Joseph and I and, and Michelle were at the other church, we, we had this man that came there and he ended up getting, was it pancreatic cancer, Pastor Joseph? pancreatic cancer and we were at a men's meeting and one of the other men got up there during prayer and just frustrated got up with the hand of god and cast it out of that person they got back after that men's retreat and got a clean report from the doctor pancreatic cancer that was killing him was completely gone and after like three weeks he stopped coming to church and I never understood that. Like, how could you have such an incredible miracle and experience with God and then after a few months just walk away like it, it never happened? But if I'm being honest, sometimes those things creep into my head too. Have you ever had doubt creep in? Have you ever had fear creep in? And I look at my life and, and every now and then those weird doubts will try to creep in and I'll be like, but I've seen the opposite. I've seen God move. I've seen miracles. I've seen all this. Yet sometimes that tries to creep in. Maybe that only happens to me. Probably not you guys. You guys are probably doing much better than me. So that's one thing I always like to remember when I read these stories is it's real easy to go, oh, you stupids, you should know better than that. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can fall into those same traps. Amen? 
So here we have it. These people, they've seen God move, but they don't believe. They want to turn around. And God is frustrating with, frustrated with unbelieving people. Right? He's frustrated with what happened here. He basically says, and this is, you'll notice here it says, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. The verses before this basically is, is, is God telling Moses, I was just going <laughs> to be done with these people. And Moses says, listen, if you do that, if you destroy them, the Egyptians will hear of it, and the inhabitants of this land will hear of it, and fault God, fault you for not being strong enough. So God basically says, fine. If they don't trust me then, then they can't go into the promised land. The ones that don't trust me, I will dispossess them. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11, 16, 11, 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, that's one of the things that we see over and over and over in the Bible. And actually, a lot of people don't like to hear this. But your faith, your trust in God will impact what he does in your life. Here's a perfect example. They didn't trust God. And because of that, they missed out on what God had for them. What God had promised to them because they didn't believe his promise. They basically made it impossible for God to fulfill it in their life. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God, to, to, to please God. So we have these people. They saw what God did. They didn't believe, so God says, you know what? You don't get to enter the land. You see, in this day, we talked about how um, Moses was saying, God, if you do this, if you let them be destroyed, then, then people will attribute that to you. Because in, in, these, in this day, when nations went to war, their gods went to war with them. And if they lost, you know, if, you, if, if, if a nation had a god that they worshipped and they go to war and they lost, then they would, they would actually uh, stop worshipping that god. It would actually uh, cause people to look at that god with less favor, just to see that that god wasn't really a god at all. So Moses pleads with him because he didn't want this to happen to God. The funny thing is, is it wouldn't stop God being God. It would just stop how people saw God. So he says, don't do that. But then they don't get to enter the land. And I want you to know, church, there are consequences for not putting your trust when you don't trust God. To think that we can just live our, our lives with like a quasi-faith or just somewhat faith and think that, that it's not going to impact how we live is crazy. The Bible says over and over that we need to have faith. We need to trust. The only thing that actually made Jesus marvel was two things. Great faith and lack of faith. We inherit the promises of God through faith. We grab hold of salvation through faith. Everything is based on faith and trust in Him. And here we see that only Caleb and Joshua are going to enter the promised land. And the only difference was the different faith that they had. They believed God. Nobody else did. Joshua 14, 7 through 11 says this. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. 
Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old, but I am still as strong today as I was in the day when Moses sent me. And my strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. Church, I want you to know that God is faithful. When you put your trust in him, it is not some sort of blind faith. It's not some sort of, uh, of, of risk that you're taking. God is true. He is faithful. You see, this is Caleb speaking in this passage. And Caleb didn't get discouraged when he didn't think it was happening as fast as he wanted it to happen. How many know that the way that the rest of the congregation believed it impacted Caleb and made him wait another 40 years before he got into the promised land. But God fulfilled his promise to him. God maintained his body. He says, I'm 85 years old and I'm still as strong as I was 40 years ago. He followed God fully, not half-heartedly. And as a result, he inherited the fullness of God's promise for his life. He's 85 years old but he didn't look or feel 85 years old. He wasn't weak. He wasn't old. He inherited God's promise just as God intended it for him. Adam Clark is a, a biblical commentator. He, he estimated there were 3 million people wandering in the wilderness. That's uh, men, women, and children. So that means approximately a million of them died. Over a million of them died is they were unable to enter due to unbelief. Now what's interesting is, is they didn't really have a bad life, right? You know the story, God took care of them. In some ways it was pretty good. Food came down from heaven and fed them. Once a week, quail would come out so they could get quail and have meat, which is actually God just being acquiescing to their grumbling, unfortunately. When they kids grew up and their feet got bigger the shoes grew with their feet how awesome would that be <laughs> they never wore out grew with their feet the clothes too never wore out it grew with the kids they didn't have a bad life but they missed out what god wanted for them you see god wanted more so you can Become a Christian. Have just enough faith to be saved and everything else just maintain that even keel for the rest of your life. Life might not be too bad. And you get to go heaven, so that's good. But how much did you miss out on along the way? How much more did God want for you? How much more did God want to do through you? How much more did you miss out on because you refuse to trust God and instead let all the conflicting reports get wrapped up in your head. Church, don't miss out on what God has for you because you believe in the wrong report. Amen.